Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode four of The Dignity of Suffering. My guest today is one of my oldest friends, Nicholas Belacious. We met in high school and both ended up becoming psychotherapists after different journeys. Today's episode was a live event, which I called Lunch with a Therapist. It aired on Facebook on April 29th, 2021. I thought it would be neat to offer an opportunity for people to write in and ask questions and be a fly in the wall of two old friends who have had a passion for psychology for decades. I think one of my biggest takeaways from today's interview was the idea of holding space. It was interesting to engage in dialogue with Nick, and as always, when I re-listened to our conversation, I heard different strands that weren't apparent to me the first time. For instance, I really appreciate Nick's perspective on holding tensions, that we can get caught in narrativizing our experience. What I think he means by this is that we need to be able to hold all of the different ways that we can look at something, such as experiences and transitions in our lives. And often we have a hunger within us for clarity and answers. Nick alludes to this in the psychotherapeutic process where we often come wanting to be fixed. Another lovely piece that I look forward to sharing with you revolves around the idea of the wounds that we all carry and how they transform over time but still remain in our cells. I reflected on how personal this can feel and Nick makes a lovely point about needing to protect the space around these pains especially when we are in them or they are closer to the surface. One of the attendees of the live interview wrote to me after and remarked how blessed I am to have Nick's friendship in my life. And she is right. So without further ado, I bring you Lunch with a Therapist, Episode 1. This interview, I think, has been a long time coming. Nicholas and I have known each other for almost three decades. We're not we're not too far off from that. <laughs> and, and it struck me for the podcast that it would be really nice to interview Nick because he, first of all, is one of my closest friends. Uh, second of all, he's a bright thinker and Third of all, he recently, I think in the last couple of years, became a psychotherapist. And <laughs> and this is an interview for the podcast that I'm doing called The Dignity of Suffering. And the idea for this podcast really is to kind of go into these liminal spaces or these spaces where we 
are kind of torn apart. I think they're often very private. They're places that, you know, you really only share with those that are closest with you. And even then that can be hard. You know, even when you're very close to someone, the intimacy of those relationships can sometimes, you know, shine a kind of floodlight on these parts of us. And so I, I would suspect that even in the closest of relationships, sometimes people can disappear or go quiet because it's it's almost the intimacy that you'd almost have an easier time talking to a stranger about something than you might somebody who's known you your whole life because that might kind of, you know, put put those feelings on on steroids. So I want to begin today by kind of starting well, I guess when I mean Nick, you had your sights set on on a career and still do to some extent as an academic. You put in blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> you did a PhD, and if I remember correctly, your first contract was at Concordia in Montreal. It was a three-year contract for teaching. And in the middle of that contract, or at some point, your wife, I think even she had maybe had just defended or was about to defend, and she did one interview in Waterloo, and she got a tenure track job. <laughs> and, you moved, you had a small child. It was your third move in, I think, you know, two years or something. And I think it's important. I'd like to start here today because you and I talk a lot. We've been on the phone throughout high school and then all the different experiences we've had after high school. And so the space that we've created for each other, I think, was often that kind of liminal space where we're betwixt and between, confused. And I think it could be helpful for people to hear a little bit about what it was like for you making that move, you know, Shanna getting the job, and then the space you were in to kind of figure out over time, like, do I want to stay? Do I want to do something new? Because on the surface, people are like, oh, look at all these accomplishments, right? You're a psychotherapist now, but it doesn't it doesn't happen like that. And I'm just, I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a bit about what that was like for you to kind of wake up and wonder, should I, you know, invest more time, do another graduate degree, because that that didn't seem like an easy decision, even if now you look back and it's enriched your life in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you're asking about these crossroad situations where we weigh different options, and and when we're often at these crossroads, our decisions feel very heavy and important. So yeah, that's kind of the the middle space that you're asking about, right? When we feel caught in between, should I be here? Should I be there? And I think a lot of us feel that, you know, in a lot of different circumstances. So I think it's a it's a not uncommon space, but sometimes I think they they become more acute, right? It feels important to act. I think that that's kind of how I was feeling at that moment. So we're, we're kind of going back in time a little bit and uh, sort of you're, you're asking about kind of going in one way, sort of toiling. I always think of, you know, our friends in the kind of acting world, right. Uh, Or in the arts world and that, that kind of toil of, you know, waiting for the big break, right. And you kind of toil, you take classes, you go out for auditions and, you know, you get a lot of rejections and all it takes is one big, you know, one big get and, you know, you kind of made it. And I think that that's how I felt a lot was, was I was kind of putting in, putting in effort, you know, 
training, sacrificing, putting in money, you know, publishing, trying to kind of network, do all those things. And you just kind of feel, I think, I think, I don't know if this is a, a kind of Hollywood sort of stereotype, but at some point you feel like, okay, I've put in the time, it's, it's going to come. And when it comes, it's going to be great. And it's yes, going to sure. justify all the hard work I did. And it's going, I'm going to look back on this with fondness and with kind of, you know, joking reverence and, and all of that. Well, what I've really learned, you know, meeting with so many people is that that sense of cohesion or clarity of vision or having an almost aesthetic kind of like visceral model in one's mind of where one is going, it's so crucial and useful, right? Like it's such it's such a buffer often against anxiety or ambivalence, especially at a time when when you sort of have to make these decisions you know, to throw yourself into things that take all your energy, right? And that can often be, you know, there can be a bit of arrested development, of course. I'm thinking of like Erickson's stages of development where, you know, you're supposed to go to university or whatever one wants to do. And then there's this incredible existential crisis. So it seems to me that throwing oneself in, you know, is necessary. And and I know I'm asking you you know, about your personal experience. And I, and I hope that's okay. We, we don't have to talk about it, but I, I think it's helpful for people. Like it reminds me of like Brene Brown who did, you know, her first Ted talk. And then she hid in her hotel room for four days and she called it a, a vulnerability hangover. And, and she came out of the hotel room and she had, you know, like millions of views on this Ted talk. It was like, while she was like, while she was like, you know, there, <laughs> You know, people were seeing this and were deeply inspired by it. My, my motivation for asking you about this is by no means to to air things out, but more like, like you've done it. Like you, you know, we spent a night or uh, at a hotel room where I came over at least when you interviewed at U of T and, you know, because it was so intense. And then it took like months after to kind of integrate, you know, and, and I think there's a dignity in that. In the moment, of course, it's like... <laughs> I mean, it's, it feels like the most undignified thing in the whole world because you're exposed. But it, it seems to me that that kind of like the, the negative side of it, it is sort of something almost like a pool cue that's like, you know, it's it's knocking the ball further or something, you know, and, and we're not in the moment. It feels like our dreams have been dashed. And I don't want to mystify it either, but it, these moments are certainly things that cut parts of us away. They, you know, trim the fat. They, we wind up a day, you know, you, you, maybe you're, you're in a faculty meeting and you're like, do I really want to be an academic? Is this really what I want? And I'm curious how you, what helped you survive the, that kind of dissolution? Do you know, like what helped you make sense of kind of being confused? Because uh, I think I think that was there. Like I think that that you and I had many conversations, and, I, and and I'm not suggesting I haven't had that either. I just I have a lot of respect for you, and so I think that it'd be neat for people to hear from your point of view what helped you. Yeah, put put a container around some of that confusion. Maybe there wasn't a container at times. Yeah, and and that's that's it's nicely put. And I think my first impulse here, and again, this is an impulse that's come with age, is to resist almost resist narrativizing these experiences because to like to complete them to to say this 
this happened and then I went through this challenge and I overcame it and we, we ended up here. And that's, sure. and that's how a lot of, I feel like these stories play out too. You know, even the stories of tragedy, it's like, I, I grieved this and then I over, and I, I learned a lesson from that. Yeah. It's the kind of subtle Christian narrative. I think that's always like the, 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 the resurrection or the, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the, the absolute re- redemption. Right. And I think, you know, and, and I think, you know, for me, you know, talking about these things is is difficult, and I want to be careful because I want to preserve also the the pain and the process that I'm still hmm. going through, and still living with. Right? I mean, I've talked about that with clients who are going through heartbreak, right? And and I've reflected on my own heartbreak that you know, different heartbreaks I've had with relationships over the years, they're still there with me to some extent. You know, and 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 again, I think there's a desire for a kind of having a a narrative closure of that. That I had this, and this person meant this to me, and it was painful, but I grew and I learned from it. And and there's parts of that that's true, but there's also parts of that where there's still some unresolved things, sure. you know, that kind of or nagging things, or or a little bit of regrets, or a little bit of pain that still kind of lingers, and and that's the thing I've been kind of more interested in and and kind of inviting and embracing more interested in terms of inviting in to to be with to sit next to yeah to have that kind of i, I mean again to, it, it's not an open wound but it, it's a scab right and you know scabs or scars can still be tender you know they're not open they're not gushing we're not acute uh but they're still they're marking and they can be painful and and sometimes with i think with wounds too or injuries and this can be psychic injuries or physical injuries we never like it it has a permanent reorientation of our of our bodies and selves i love this idea that nick brings forward i think we all carry within us moments from our lives where we were and are deeply affected And I imagine that the physical memory of these events is one of the most personal sensations that we hold and bear. And what a treat to be able to explore this with him. When we come back, we continue in this vein, exploring further these ideas, their relationship to the psychotherapeutic space, and more. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for joining me on the Dignity of Suffering podcast. I'm super excited to announce episode two of Lunch with a Therapist, where I will be interviewing best-selling author and icon, Dr. Gabor Mate, on June 3rd in a live interview. And if you'd like to be part of our audience, head to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com and sign up. I would also be grateful if you would take a moment and subscribe to and rate the podcast These small gestures go a long way. Lastly, this podcast is a labor of love, and I wouldn't be able to do this without you. Please continue to join me on this journey, and I will do my utmost to bring you meaningful and relevant content. If you feel these episodes are worthwhile, please consider supporting the podcast by making a donation at paypal.me forward slash Dignity of Suffering, or head to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com. 
Now back to my interview with psychotherapist Nicholas Palacios. I, I like what you're saying because I sit here and I think about even though parts of my life I have gone over, thought about, maybe reconciled in certain ways, when you touch it, it's a particular feeling. You know, it's almost like there's a, uh, I don't even know if there's a word for it. It, it. I can just feel it in my body. It's just this kind of raw, <laughs> like it's lingering and hanging on somewhere, somewhere inside. Like it's a very living kind of dynamic uh, relationship, I think. <laughs> It, it, it brought me to something else, which which may be a segue, but something that, um, sure. you know, this is why having a community where we can kind of collectively talk about these these kinds of experiences, I think is important because this is th- these are very personal, cellular experiences, I think, that we have at a very private level. And we can certainly come back to this, but something that I recently, and I was just saying this to to my wife, to, to Sylvia, the, the notion of stories, because you just mentioned kind of with clients, and I, I don't know, to be honest, that I had really appreciated until very recently the power of stories. And when I used to work in, in Toronto at Harborfront Center and doing festivals, you know, I, I got to meet a lot of people who make a a life out of telling stories, you know, this this beautiful old tradition of relaying cultural, personal memory. And recently in my practice, much in the way that you were saying, something, maybe we can't simplify it in the sense that it has this kind of clear, articulated beginning, middle, and end, but, but something about what is contained in a story allows, situates somebody's experience in a different way. Because you and I, we, I want to share this and I hope it's okay. We had this unusual thing where I actually counted three different therapists that we've both seen. The, uh, the, the same therapist? Yes. Yeah. I know we have at least two. Right. But yes, probably three as well. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an unusual connection with somebody, right? That's not, I don't, I mean, I don't have that in my life with anybody else. You're right. That's probably unusual for, even about you know therapists seeing therapists, the, the the chance that they'll overlap with two or three is probably rare. Yes, unless you're in a very small school. Right, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, in some of these schools, but I mean, to be close friends and then to have a kind of lexicon, or you know, because of the architecture of therapy, often the mind of the therapist, right, is giving minds to the client. And there's there's subjectivity there and there's idiom. And I think you and I at times have been like, oh, we we can kind of, we can share a particular idiom. You know, in the beginning, you and I were introduced to Carl Jung. I actually found his book for the first time uh, on your mom's bookshelf at your house in Aurora. It was mm-hmm. the first, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I remember reading it and Nick, I couldn't like... We were in high school. It was a white, one of the white volumes, paperback, and I opened it and I could not make heads or tails. But what I do remember as we've evolved as therapists or thinkers is that, that there was a time when there was nothing else or, you know, there was a bit of a pretension, I guess, within, within a certain idea of like, this is, you know, this is therapy. Everything else is either beneath or missing the point. And, you know, uh, I remember we used to have these kind of discussions or, or like, you know, we would sort of get our backs up and and it still goes on, of course. But you've gone on to, I mean, you did a, a master's that also had a pastoral component to it, I believe. You were exposed to EFT. 
And you did a very cool thing, which not many of us have done, which is that you worked in a low vision clinic as part of your internship. And then I think you got hired there to help people. I'll simplify it, but I'd love to hear from you to help people find a certain dignity in that or even just to process it, period. And I'm just curious about what that's been like for you to kind of evolve or like when, 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 when was there a crack in the armor when you were a bit like, oh, maybe there's more... <laughs> Because I know what happened to me in my master's. I, I felt torn apart. Like I just felt like I was losing my footing a bit because I felt like I'd build this solid foundation and then all of a sudden it was in flux. And I'm curious if you had something similar or if it was just more progressive for you. One thing I'll sort of reflect on first is one thing that I'm working through a lot right now in my own therapy and in my own ideas. Um, and part of it comes from a certain analytical exposure in a in a union concept context that you you had as well right and one was this idea that um there is a kind of right path for the psyche right that the psyche or the unconscious um knows where it wants to go knows where it wants to take you the yeah, ego the, the theological yeah, yeah and that and that we and that our job as sort of patients or analyzans is to kind of tune into this frequency, right? Align ourselves with it and kind of, you know, line ourselves up and, and live in accordance to this. And, and so for me, my, and, and these were my early ideas of what, what therapy was, what analysis, what psychoanalysis was, was that symptoms, right? Are signs that you're out of alignment with your kind of authentic psychic self and unconscious self, right? You know, so that 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 if you keep kind of, you know, if you have recurring bad dreams or if you're, you know, you're in a bad relationship or a bad job that, you know, you know you shouldn't be in, but you're kind of afraid or something's keeping you there, but it's not right for you. It's kind of unhealthy that you'll be hounded by your by bad dreams and by symptoms and by malaise and you have to kind of it has a real pull yourself up from your bootstraps approach right there's a lot of in that approach and i think both of us share this there's a lot of pressure to kind of on you the individual to to do that work to to kind of you know get in tune get in alignment you know read your dreams read understand your symptoms make choices and then free yourself of 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 these things there's still some of that that I, I believe in, right? There's still there's still a lot of that that I, I find very useful, but I'm waning myself. And I think I think this is a real hard thing from this idea that there is a right way, right? Or that there is, or that the psyche or the unconscious has one goal for us, has one destination. I mean, certainly we can do things, right? We can make choices that are, negative, we can kind of, you know, wallow in our misery and self-loathing and and not, you know, kind of take actions. And that can have negative psychic consequences for sure. But this is something I'm really, it's just new for me too, of kind of realizing, and it, it's kind of taking some of the pressure off too, because, because this is inherent in that idea too. And this is, 
I mean, you know, in a lot of the popular therapeutic models too, like CBT and things like that, what we're trying to do is eradicate negative symptoms, right? We're trying to move from, I have an 85% anxiety that manifests in certain ways, and I'm going to reduce that to hopefully 0%. And you, you probably feel the same way as someone, you know, I've been in analysis and therapy much of my life, and I've worked my butt off, you know, and I've read everything and I've tried, you know, and, and yet things persist, right? Anxieties persist, depressive episodes persist. And this is something that's really, really hard to kind of convey to new clients as well, that, you know, that this process is, is going to be kind of lifelong, maybe not with that therapist, maybe not in that kind of mode, but you know, we're not talking about a kind of a quick fix or a shortcut. You know, certain things can, can you, we can have real leaps and real discoveries. But, you know, the fact that we have to live, we, we live with these things. And maybe I'll have a kind of a, you know, deathbed enlightenment where all of these things magically dis- disappear, <laughs> right? But they, they haven't yet. And, well, and, you and, know, <laughs> one of our, um, shared teachers would say that, you know, life is an equal measure, you know, success and and failure or, you know, success and disappointment. And and I like what you said. That's an interesting point because that is a tension, right? There's a huge tension. I was actually engaging in a dialogue with somebody who had posted a, um, some comment about when therapy ends or how to end with a client or how do you know when they're done and what I hear you talking about is a kind of earlier mystification of the process so that the unconscious takes on this kind of, you know, all or nothing quality to it. But what's what's interesting, of course, is that really in therapy, I mean, it's just two human beings, right? Two human beings that are just trying to touch, <laughs> you know, it's, it's again, right? It's, it's, it's really just two people putting their own subjectivity together. And I wonder if the, if the common thread there is the sense of curiosity. So when, you know, in that more classical model of, of really paying attention to the dreams, and here I'm talking about people like, you know, James Hillman would, would you know, just not to interpret the image or things like sand play, right? Where, where you can go for months in sand play and the therapist never interprets or really comments on the images. And I think there's a kind of there's a respect there, I think, of a, of a kind of unfolding versus whether it's in CBT or even in, in e, you know, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or emotion-focused therapy where there are these protocols. And if you see an opening, if you see that in CBT somebody has a distorted way of viewing their situation, which is causing anxiety... You want to you want to go in and measure the the valence of the emotional response to bring to almost bring the person's attention inward, right? To become aware that some process is is going on in the moment that is interrupting perhaps the embodiment of that of that situation or feeling. Or you know, in EFT, a lot of it is, you know, you're looking at defensive structures, which I think aligns with Jung because. Jung talked about complexes, right? So, you know, I think that that it's interesting how language over a hundred years has changed. But this dialogue with this person who was talking about ending therapy in that, you know, I said, 
I said, look, like we don't appreciate sometimes the space that's created for, for somebody and what it means to them. We can see seven, eight people in a day and think, oh, nothing's going on here or the work seems like it's mm -hmm. kind of stalled. But we don't really know. And I'll just share one story which moved me very deeply, which was that one of my colleagues passed away three weeks before his graduation from becoming uh, an analyst. He died of cancer. And they still had his graduation posthumously. And his analyst came. And his analyst said that when he was in the last stages of his cancer and he could hardly move, he would come into the therapeutic office and he would ask his analyst to read him fairy tales, Hans Christian Andersen, and, and he would lie down on the couch in the therapist's office and the therapist would just read to him and he would fall asleep sometimes. And it was one of those beautiful things I ever heard because it just, like, it just knocked me sideways and was like, you know, don't ever become pretentious about what this is. You, you know, I think Carl Rogers said that, you know, the client will make the use of the therapist the way that they need to in the moment. And there's a kind of listening in that. And so I don't mean to diverge from what you shared, because I think that, mm -hmm. that because I think you're answering me, which is, you know, that, that for you in some ways, as things have thickened and become more complex, it's challenged an early model of kind of a religious affiliation to the to to the unconscious and a kind of paternalistic inheritance i think which is like if you're not you know if your dream comes back seven times what's wrong with you like why what haven't you kind of learned <laughs> which i think is an earlier inheritance when this was uh, you know coming from an environment where that was probably more common in terms of the relationship with people and children and you know there was a much more of like a Hey, like, figure this out, buddy. Like, what, what's <laughs> versus a, a an environment now? I think, which I hope, and is coming out in other gender areas that you know, we're just having to get out of our own way a bit when it comes to how we treat other people, and the kind of openness that that we have to bring in corporate environments, academic environments, and you know, you just can't you, you can't be you know. I, I feel like that's affected the therapeutic environment you know it's it's softened in a way uh, and you see that in 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 the theory that is emerging mhm mm mhm mm yeah there's there's a lot there i mean it it's funny i'm kind of you know we're we're sort of you know this is how this process works and it's how it works in therapy where you you know you you get sparked you get you know you have a conversation things things pop up and and one of the <laughs> things i've also been thinking about as well is you know when you talk about the mystification of the therapeutic process i've been trying to think about this as well you know again i you know for me the therapeutic context has been so important and has been such a singular part of my life and one of the things you know i just talked about with my analysts this week was you know sometimes you bring in laundry lists from other people, right? And this happens a lot in couples therapy. I work with a couple where they say, you need to work on this. And then, you know, I was, you know, sometimes this happens with my wife and I, where we therapize each other and we say, go take this to your analyst, go sort it out. And, you know, and I was saying to my analyst this week, I don't want to bring that in, right? This is the one, this is the one place where I can kind of, you know, have, have total absolute freedom to, you know, like you were saying, to kind of make use of this space and time as, as, as you see fit. Mm -hmm. 
And it's a we it's a weird kind of again, there's something kind of that resists in me to that because I feel like, no, we should be using therapy for making ourselves better and 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 some of this kind of popular psychology talk around like, you know, improvement and be more positive and be be our best self, all these kinds of terms that I find kind of preposterous. But you know, if we can kind of, you know, there's a, a stronger part of me that was resisting that and saying, look, if I want to talk about this line that I read in this book or this poem or this thing that came up or a little dream or an encounter I had, and it has nothing to do with what my my day-to-day maybe kind of neuroses or psychoses or, or what other people see, like, oh, you're always being neurotic about, about this or that issue. That to me is is important, right? And that to me is is distinguishes this space, and yes. and really privileges this space as yes. being, you know, this is absolute freedom because you don't have that freedom in other no. places, right? You do, you know, as a parent, right, or as a in a family situation, yeah, you do have to reckon with those things, right? Because they have interpersonal consequences. So your your cheapness or your uh, t- you know tendency to anger, you do have to deal with it, but you don't have a choice. But I think in therapy, I think sometimes, you know, and people come in saying, I have an anger issue, I'm going to work on my anger. And and we can work on anger, but but that does disservice to the space to be a space of absolute individualization where you can, you know, and I do think there's a relation, right? I do think dealing with other things can can have a relation to anger. It's hard to, it's hard to always, you know. Well, what I hear you talking about are our containers and the kind of privileged space of, of therapy. And I, and I just recently interviewed Charlene Jones for the podcast, who we both know, and she was uh, and is an incredibly important part of our lives, but especially our upbringings. And, you know, she made the comment, she referred to that notion of that as above, so below, you know, this, this, this notion of the higher things are, the lower they are. And of course, in our daily lives, what it actually takes for us to let in what is low and and the kind of listening that goes on in therapy as as I think you're saying that we you know we have to read between the lines we have to somehow get get out out of the kind of positivity in the culture, which is something else that Charlene talked about, which is deeply relieving in many ways. You know, I was thinking, of course, of Taoism earlier when you were referring to to Jung's early ideas of like like something is stuck, you know, like a swell in the water, and it's it's, you know, how do we how do we listen? Or, or you know, when they were listening for black holes a few years ago, they remember they they for the first time heard with the gravity waves, I think, a supernova, and they'd be listening like that. For me, almost was like a metaphor for therapy a little bit, where it's like you're you're listen you're you're tuning into. You know, because all these ideas like the unthought known or, you know, you know, I think Beyond has these ideas of like the O in therapy or something, you know, you know, a thought comes to mind. It's like, where is it? There are some folks who are who are listening and, and you know, we're just over halfway through. So we'd be very much open if you've heard something or have a thought on your mind that you'd love us to uh, elaborate on or a question. I'm sure there's some old friends and colleagues that are here. So please, I, I can see the chat and you're more than welcome to to chime in and we'll let that, you know, affect us and see where it see where it takes us. 
I, I just want to ask a question to you. This is another sure. thing. These are just things that I'm thinking about. You know, I thought this is this is a good venue to voice them. And you know, can this psychological work? These things that we're talking on can. You know, I think about this as a therapist, and I and I and I privilege the therapeutic space, and I think it's important in various ways. But I also wonder. I mean, I know that there's a lot of people who aren't in therapy and who who won't ever go to therapy, and there's 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 different you know reasons for that. But I I do wonder about you know whether you know can the psychological work you know I I mean happen outside of these spaces, and and what does that look like? Especially, I think for myself, because this is where psychological work has happened. I think, I think it, you know, intersects with other parts of my life as well. But uh, I don't know. These are these are things I'm I'm reflecting on. I'm going to go out on a limb, and and I'm going to say that you know, when I worked in the hospital and I worked with severely mentally ill people, people whose grief and pain had had resulted in a schizoid response to the world, which just ravished them and made it impossible to take care of themselves in the way that we understand that, showering, going to bed, or, or holding a job. And that these, these ways that our grief takes us on are, are on a spectrum. And often in therapy, some people can't even handle the therapeutic relationship because there is so much damage to trusting other people. And that, I think, manifests in things like attention deficit disorder, you know, hypervigilance, not being able to settle. This is the work of Stephen Porges, you know, so we can't, I can't, you know, like you and I talking right now, right? Like we must, I was thinking about it today, right? We've had, we had, went to the same high school, grew up in a similar area, we had three therapists that were the same. Like we must vibrate, you know, it must be easier for us to kind of like a tuning fork. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to interrelationships, that can go so wrong. And, you know, in answering your question, I think that, I think there's a function of being able to help people begin to relate again, which maybe sometimes has to happen in the therapeutic office because in the outside world, there is such pain and disappointment in failure that people need to soothe themselves in all kinds of dramatic ways. And we all have that. I have my own vices and they're all, you know, but Gabor Mate writes about this, who I'll be interviewing in June, right in his book, you know, uh, in the realm of the hungry ghosts. He says, look, I'm a physician. I've left women in labor. I go and spend $3,000 on classical music. I have a job. I have food on my table. Like I can still have a family. You know, someone shoots up on the east side in Vancouver and spends their last dime, they're alone. And this can ravage their body. And, and so I think the work's happening all the time. But the, to the degree that we can let, you know, I, I want to bring Shar back in again, because Shar's, you know, I asked her at the end of the interview, what keeps her up at night? And she said, she said, love. <laughs> you know, and and that earlier in my life, I wouldn't have understood. But the more I open up, and sit with people, I realize that that, and I get emotional talking about it, that's what we end up losing when we are hurt, when we are so humiliated that our bodies turn against us and we have autoimmune disorders. We're trying to love ourselves at a cellular level, but but on the outside, it looks like you're destroying yourself, you know, to someone else. You're just trying to love yourself. And so if that can, if that door can open, and sometimes a therapist does it, 
or other times it happens in, in other ways where someone finds a way to help you believe again, then yes, like if the work is about a kind of fundamental love that allows us to read a book uh, at a park and let the author's words wash over us and the feeling wa wa you know, wash over us and I'm not worried I'm going to get raped. If that love can transcend into our body, then I think there's, uh, there's ways that that happens. But I would, I would say that what we do is a place where we can contain the madness sometimes that one has to go through. This was a live interview, and so we shifted gears and tried to answer some questions from those listening, beginning with a great reflection on the relationship to the body in the psychotherapeutic process. Does the correlation between mental and physical health come up in either of your practices? Emotions at the cellular level. Do you ever observe physical manifestations of emotional dealings and sessions with clients? I mean, the answer is the answer is yes for, for mm -hmm. me. And but more specifically, half, if not more, of the time, I'm actually not listening to what the person is saying per se, but I'm actually watching their skin. You know, if you watch the skin below someone's eye, if you watch somebody's eyes, you know, of course. Of course, there's the whole notion of pulling away, and there's a real dignity in somebody's body when they feel embodied, like the whole architecture of the body just changes and comes alive. What, one example, which I just wrote about, and this couple contacted me from California, because I've worked with couples where someone maybe has a terminal illness, or someone has a chronic debilitating illness. And this particular couple that I saw the partner, who's quote-unquote healthier, goes into a protector mode, right? So they're, they're like, they don't come home from work and say, oh, my boss was mean to me today because their partner just had to fly somewhere for chemo or, or like is exhausted. And so the partner then tends to kind of shut down. And then what happens, as we know, when you shut down is you become potentially resentful or lost because you're carrying all this emotion. So the couple came to me and the partner who'd shut down said, I don't know if I'm in love anymore. And what I heard was that he'd felt so afraid to lean on his partner who was dying that that overwhelm of aloneness just like it just made it impossible for him to settle or to, you know, and so the most amazing thing happened. You know, this woman who, you know, had a terminal illness, when I helped her partner open up with her, when he just said to her, I'm afraid, like, I don't want to hurt you, but the truth is, you know, work is overwhelming. This woman's body, she went from like, you know, she sat up, like she just, you know, and she looked at him and she said to him, she said, you know, when you, when you just tell me like the everyday stuff of your life or you trust me to let me in, she said, everyone else sees me as sick and dying. She says, you see me as your partner. Like you see me as a, as a dignified person who has something to give you, which might be comfort or understanding. And to answer your, your question, Carrie, it's like that blows me away. And, you know, and that is so hard because if I point out to someone that, of course, like, 
like, of course, they're crying and they're so afraid of that. They'll deny it. I mean, it's such a cliche, but someone say, I have hay fever. Oh, I, I didn't sleep last night or no, I'm not crying. And it's never, tr it's just never true. Like, it's just never, you know, it, it's always that their body is carrying something that has to find a uh, voice. And so I'll actually be interviewing this couple from California. Her husband is a physician. She might even be on the call right now. You know, she she wrote to me in, in tears and said, no one's ever put it in that way before. And it just helped her understand what was happening in, in their marriage. And so I look forward to talking to them and sharing that. But that's a bit of what I see. To add to this, you know, again, I think ultimately, right, we can take that analogy of the therapist and the client and not knowing and trying to understand that labor of understanding. But I think ultimately that's what we want to do to within ourselves right is is that kind of to build that like we don't understand ourselves and we to to develop that internal dialogic relationship that that relation like a kind of internal therapist within ourselves to say to develop that curiosity and to say you know what does that you know with with Andrew's question you know what why, why is that, you know, the, the the kind of increased money doesn't make me happy? Where did that idea come from? Why, why is that question? Where did I learn that or something like that and bring all these questions in? <laughs> I mean, that's something, again, that I'm really working with. And, and again, you can kind of tell your own story over and over and over again, and you can think it means this or it meant this here, but it, it changes, it evolves its meaning. Uh, every time you tell it. And and it's funny, you asked me about other formation. And one of the, the you know, I did theology in my psychotherapy training and, and rabbinical theology and, and the, 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 the rabbi's question about the 64 turns, right? When, you know, the, the 64 answers to the question. I mean, this this really foregrounds a lot of my therapeutic work is that there is, you know, there's not one meaning to this. You know, and we talk, you know, kind of e even like sim symptom, you know, emotional like pathologies or something. There's not one meaning. It's not it's not this is my repressed uh, anger towards my father. Sure, that could be a part, but there's maybe 63 other meanings to that. And that's the kind of that's the work and the curiosity, because, uh, you know, that I think is is, you know, motivates my therapeutic work is is we we get into trouble when we when we become rigid and, yes, uh, and sure. the certainty, you sure. know, so even to return to our earlier point, you know, about this narrative to say, you know, I, I struggled, I labored in this one field and then it didn't work. And so I tried something else and that now I've, you know, now I'm truly me and I found my, my certainty or my purpose, you know, those can be traps as well because, yeah, you, know. you know, nothing, you know, <laughs> Because we never fully, this is, you know, we never fully are equal to ourselves, right? Mitch is never Mitch. Nick is never Mitch. Nick, you know, we, we are always, there's always the, these kinds of internal differences that, that, and, you know, and that's beautiful, right? It's, I think it's scary on the one hand. I think there's, there's a comfort and appeal of a kind of a certainty and of like, now I know myself. Now I know what, you know, the meaning of life and, and, and everything. But I think, you know, there's also a gift to say, you know, that, that, that ourselves are, there's all, we're always marked by an infinite kind of internal difference. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned infinite because it, 
it, it feel I feel like we've almost come back to the beginning of our conversation. You know, one of my colleagues, Erica Berman, who is an amazing therapist in Toronto, and she works with infertility in couples. And what was crossing my mind when you were just talking was that that like these are the cuts, right? Like the cuts to our singular vision of who we are, what we're going to be, you know, it's infinite, right? Leading us towards death. And and in my, you know, third podcast, I interview a, a colleague and friend, Sean Smith. He's a professor of Buddhism in Honolulu, and he just cuts right to it. I mean, this is this is the real deal when these things happen to us. And our capacity to dislodge ourselves from expectation, from how we want things to go. I mean, that th th that feels like a rehearsal for dying to me. You know, th that that feels like, and, and that's why the, the midlife crisis, and I don't know if, you know, I don't want to simplify what Andrew was saying in his comment, but that's actually where Jung's, I mean, Jung was the big midlife crisis person. People were always flying in from the States because everything fell apart. And I feel like, like the more rigid the idea is that we're holding, the greater the fall when things unravel. And so it's it's that capacity in some ways, and I don't want to be inflated here. No one can hold the inf infinite, but at least to appreciate that there is an infinite number of possibilities. You know, one has to one has to go forth, but accept the idea that one is not going to go forth. Like you have to hold that. You have to burn the bridge before you. Before you, you know, it's that you know weird thing that you have to do every single time you take a risk. Where it's like I, you know, or to go back to what you said, Nick. We can't rely on some simplified narrative arc, you know, that things are going to work out. And that's easy to say. <laughs> but the terror, which I think is, you know, why I brought you on and something I love about our friendship, to be honest, you know, it's it's all of the moments that I could go back to where we were just on the phone scratching our heads and just really unsettled and not sure what was next. And, you know, I I, I want to thank you for being my container. Like you are you know, those moments where we reached out to each other, uh, we talk about therapy and, you know, and you say, oh, can it happen outside of therapy? Well, of course it can. I mean, it happened with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I wouldn't have got, you know, I, when I made big life decisions, I was driving, we decided to sell the house. I remember that night, Gabe was sleeping in the back of the car. I called you from the car in Sweden. And like, that was like, you were like, you were my container that night, you know, to have you there in voice, uh, like you said, gave vision for me of what, just, just to know I wasn't alone. You know, I think that's what love is, you know, like, I'm not something about that. And that that's got to be mm -hmm. hard at the end, you know, to have to let go of that, like that final, mm -hmm. like, th that's got to be what we're all practicing for mm -hmm. in some way to do that with some dignity. Yeah, no, and you're making me think of, you know, again, you know, I think, no, I didn't say this to you. I said this recently in another space, but so so many clients I have are kind of seek, seeking to be validated as normal, to know that they're not the only ones who have ever experienced this, right? And and that and that and that is very powerful and important, right? like you said, to not be alone. And at the same time, you know, it's not just to kind of generalize and to say like you are ha you are having the same thing. You're just having a panic attack, and it's just like, you know, every other panic attack. It's to acknowledge both the kind of um, universality of that, right, and 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 the universality of that. Like people have been suffering and feeling envy 
you know, since the the Old Testament and all all of these all of these ancient stories. But there's also an individuality to that too. There's a distinctness, a uniqueness. There's a, a particularity to to you. And and for me, that's where the dignity of suffering is 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 in there. Is yeah, is in that. Sure. That 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 the singularity of your suffering—it's like, yeah, you you know you, you know there has been lots of suffering, and we have stories of it, and we have coping mechanisms, but also the dignity I think comes from recognizing your singularity, your stamp on that, your particular, sure, sure. you know, because I've never, you know, I've never found it helpful when someone says to me like, oh yeah, you know, you didn't get this. A lot of people didn't didn't get this you know like if you're an actor and you're like yeah 100 people didn't get the job i don't particularly find that very useful for me uh, i think I it's a, an important part of yeah, it but yeah. but to, to to kind of recognize well what does this mean for like this means something specific for me and to find out you know why does this cut me in this way that's where i think you can find the dignity well and we don't want to let others into the toxicity of our pain you know that that I think you're right. You know something, something falls short when you know when someone's not in there with you. And a man came to see me recently who was you know going through cancer, and I mean there was nothing in the moment I could say except sit with what I also felt was just incredible weight. And and this is you know I'll finish on this note because I actually wrote. <laughs> I wrote to to Charlene about this, who who we, we had this great conversation. And I know what she was saying in her head when I wrote her, which was, yeah, this happens all the time, Mitch. Like, this is what happens when you're in this, you know, when you're sitting with someone. But, uh, you know, at the end of the session, Nick, and I never, I never take books out, but I thought something was happening that there was no language for. And he described it as lead. And I thought of alchemy, and then I, you know thought of my symbol books, but then I went and, and I thought of this book by James Hillman on archetypal psychology. And don't you know it, I haven't picked this book up in 10 years and I took it off the shelf, looked for the part in the book where he talks about this, opened it up and that's where the bookmark was sitting. Mm. And I haven't touched this book. And we read this and we weeped. We read it and we weeped. Like I just read and I haven't, Brian Mayo used to do that. Remember he'd pull his symbol book out and read about, I don't know if he did it with you, but he would read out like symbols if I dreamt of like a horse or, and I haven't mm -hmm. done this in years. And that, I kind of love that idea that when we're sitting with people, something within us, you know, that's the listening, right? Like every, Jung said, every person is their own psychology. And I don't know, the older I get, the more I, uh, well, look, I, I when you decided to be a psychotherapist, I I clicked my heels and <laughs> I wanted to say that that's what was going to happen always anyway. But I know that you know you had to come to it yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But um, it's great to connect with you here and maybe hopefully share with people a bit of what what you and I would normally do and and then have to run off because we're busy or we haven't been able to do nearly as much with children now. Mm -hmm. No, we we would do this on a plane too, <laughs> too loudly so others uh, overhear. Right, that woman, to. she, remember she, didn't she stop us? And she was like, remember she tapped us in the shoulder? Yeah, she goes, she, yeah, she said, oh, you guys, you guys must be psychologists. <laughs> I think my, my sister's a psychologist. She talks about all that, all that crap too. <laughs> you know, some people get financial advice on the plane. 
the next best thing, you know, other people get to hear about our dirty laundry. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Listen, I love you very much. Thank you for coming on and yeah, chatting with me. And thank you for all of you that stayed right to the end. It's uh, lovely to see you here. And thank you for the lovely comments. What a great opportunity to sit down with Nick and catch up and learn about how his new career is unfolding. I really appreciated the time he took to reflect on these issues. There was an admirable sensitivity to both how he views others and his own experience. Thank you so much for staying with me to the end. Please don't forget to head to my website to sign up for my live interview with Gabor Mate on June 3rd. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and rate the podcast. Until the next time, I remain faithfully yours. <laughs>